Welcome to Fertile Minds Radio. Here you'll find wisdom for your fertility journey and beyond, chosen specifically to help you trust your body and elevate your spirit so you can enjoy the process. Join us and see what a fertile mind feels like. Now your host, Hilary Talbot Rowland. Welcome back to another installment of Fertile Minds Radio. I'm your host, Hilary Talbot Rowland. Now today I've decided that we're going to talk about lab values and specifically what it means to have a complete fertility workup. This is a question that I get a lot um, from people that email me or that I see on social media sometimes in support groups of kind of what does it mean to have the whole workup? When should I do it? How do I know if I need it? How much is it going to cost? Should I do it before I go to a reproductive endocrinologist or let them do it? And these are all questions that we're going to get into today. So I'm glad that you have decided to join me for this. It means you're looking for information and being proactive about your own fertility. So let's get started. First of all, when we say a complete fertility workup, we mean your partner too. I know, I know for eons, fertility has been blamed on the woman when there's problems. And I'm here to tell you that it's really important to have a male workup as soon as possible because there can be just slight parameters that are off that can be addressed through lifestyle issues, or there can be something that is seemingly really, really wrong. And you definitely want to know sooner than later because you can spend a ton of money on everything from supplements to acupuncture to massage to IUIs. And if you haven't had that sperm analysis, which you would with an IUI, but if you don't know that there's a, a bigger problem, you're just kind of burning cash and time, which I think most of you can agree with me when I say your time is even more valuable than your cash when it comes to your fertility. So I'm going to talk about specifically what they test for and why, what is kind of normal or low normal or a red flag. And I don't want you necessarily to get out a pen and go all crazy. I want you to just listen and take it all in. I'll make sure that I provide links to all of these in the show notes at ladypotions.com backslash episode 18, as well as links to where you can get cash pay tests for all of this. Now, the reason that I'm doing that is because I feel like it's important to offer this to everyone. Now, you might be working with an OBGYN who you feel like is not pulling as many tests as they should. You might intrinsically think that something is off, or maybe you're not ready to kind of double down and go to a reproductive endocrinologist and spend thousands and thousands of dollars, and you just want to get the tests and take those to somebody that you're working with. And maybe that's an acupuncturist that's skilled in the realm of fertility, um, or maybe that's your OB and you, you just want to check for yourself and be able to dialogue and raise concerns. I find that OBs are amazing at getting babies out, but they aren't always so skilled about some of the more subtle aspects of what could point to bigger problems in your fertility. So if you're uncomfortable or thinking that you're being blown off or told you're too young to worry about this, 
I do encourage you to try and find an acupuncturist at aborm.org, A-B-O-R-M.org. And we are more than the United States now. We're starting to go international. So if you're listening from abroad, you might have a shot at getting somebody that has taken board exams and specialized in reproductive medicine. And any of us would be skilled enough to look at your lab results and tell you, Really, quite honestly, if we think that there's a problem or if you really should be seeing a reproductive endocrinologist and, and save you that time and wondering. So the reason that I say the sperm analysis is so important is not just because it can be addressed quickly in some circumstances, but because male fertility is thought to be a problem, at least in the U.S., a minimum of a third of the time. I see it really actually more 50-50 because I see a lot of cases that are both parties have an issue, um, or maybe 30% are just female or 30% are male. Now, I understand that all this can kind of be wildly overwhelming, but I really think that it's better to find out ahead of time. And this is how you got to pitch it to your man. Wouldn't you rather know now than me spending all this money on other stuff first? Knowledge is power, and it's my hope today that you'll be empowered to find out what's going on with your body and your partner's body in a non-judgmental way. So we're not doing these tests so that we can point fingers and blame one another. It's your fault. It's my fault. It's both our faults. We're doing this so that we can seek corrective action, and there is corrective action. When we leave the emotion out of the judgment, what we really have is it's just we have this ability to just try and set out to write what's not so great. So what I'm trying to say is don't let your emotional habits or reactions stand in the way of empowering yourself and finding out what exactly is happening. So let's begin. When we're thinking about what it needs to happen in order to conceive, we have to think about sperm, eggs, the uterus, its lining, if there's any obstructions, the fallopian tubes, if they're closed or open, and just what our overall health is. Age is the one factor that affects women across the board, whether we like it or not. And this is because we carry our eggs from the moment that we're born. And so they're exposed to everything that we're exposed to, including our thoughts. The ability to spot red flags in a patient's workup is what's going to allow your practitioner to guide you. Okay. It doesn't mean that you can't have the knowledge as well. I would say that my fertility challenge patients are some of the brightest that come in my door when it comes to how much they understand about their own health, um, the amount of research that they've done concerning their own lab values. And I just want to shed some light because I feel like sometimes you have to go to multiple different places to get all of this information. And Dr. Google can you know, seemingly be helpful, but I wanted to put this in one place where you could get your hands on it at a moment's notice. So like I said, try not to go crazy writing everything down and know that you can come back to it. So the first thing that both people are going to do is a comprehensive wellness panel. And this is best done at the beginning of when you decide to start trying or you're thinking about fertility, okay? And this is what some people would refer to as a CBC with add-ons in the Western world. And the reason for this is because you can see things that are, you know, kind of seemingly out of line when it comes to your liver, how it's processing things, your glucose level, how you're metabolizing insulin, 
as well as your cholesterol. Like, are you inflamed? Is your body laying down extra cholesterol to try and protect you? And there are things that you can start almost immediately in terms of lifestyle and supplement wise to have some corrective action. And overall, it's all fine and well to be a parent, but if we're not healthy and we're not going to stick around for a long time, what's the point, right? The next thing that we're going to talk about is the semen analysis. This is also part of it. And this is done, like I said, I know I've kind of hammered on this. It is best done as soon as possible and repeated. I hear a lot of time that men will say, well, I got it. Nothing was wrong. Why do I have to do it again? And the answer for that is because sperm parameters can change every 90 to 120 days. We're going to go into male infertility or male fertility patients that are challenged and a separate episode because we're going to get into the nitty gritty. So today is just going to be a brief overview, but understand me when I say everything they're exposed to could potentially change the quality of their sperm. So this is also not reason to get wildly upset if something comes back less than stellar, okay? That's a wake-up call, change some diet things, maybe do start some supplements or vitamins, cut out caffeine, nicotine, any recreational drug use, and test again in another three to four months. And then we have the complete fertility workup for a woman, which I believe is actually age-dependent. Now, I know I said knowledge is power, so yes, you can certainly go about getting these tests if you're 25 and thinking about seeing what your fertility is so that you have a baseline. That's not a bad idea either. I say if you are 40 years old or older that you should seriously do the fertility workup as soon as you decide you want to have children. This gives you a realistic outlook as to what the potential is for your body to conceive. And I think when you have some realistic outlook, again, this isn't so that you can be all judgmental on yourself. This is so that you can understand what your chances truly are. Now, if you're between 35 and 40 and you have been trying to conceive for six months or longer, it's also a good idea to get one of these workups. And then the general rule of thumb is if you're between 30 and 35 and it's been longer than a year, go get one. Now, I did mention earlier that some of you will be younger than 30 or you'll fall into that category and you'll feel like your provider is blowing you off saying, Just wait, try a little longer, and that's why I'm providing these links so so that you can go get a blood test anywhere in the country in the United States, cash pay at deep discounts, and understand what exactly is going on. Because I feel if you have that kind of worry or intuition, if you want to say that, that something is wrong just getting this test can provide you with immense peace of mind if nothing is in fact wrong. So there's different types of testing and most of this is going to be blood testing. Occasionally some of it's going to be urine, just kind of like when you pee on ovulation strips or pregnancy test strips. And some of it's going to be diagnostic and imaging. It's actually going to require you to go to an OBGYN or an RE and have them do the test in the cases of a sonogram um, or ultrasound. So let's start with the comprehensive wellness panel. And this should be done for both partners, mind you, not just the women. It's a complete blood count, also known as a CBC with differential. 
This provides vital information about iron levels, hemoglobin, red blood cells, etc. Anemia can be a problem when conceiving, and that's something that we would take into consideration when we were looking at serum iron, which is the measure of free-floating iron in the blood. Also, the amount of total iron binding capacity, and ferritin, which is a storage of a form of iron. And typically, this is the one where I see a red flag. If we see a low level, it suggests possible anemia, especially when there's intense fatigue or decreased tolerance of pain is another symptom that I see with it, or kind of free-floating pain throughout the body. You're also going to have a lipid panel. Now, lipid panels include cholesterol, triglycerides, um, including LDL and HDL, which are low and high-density lipids. And this is going to show you abnormalities when your blood sugars are unstable. And it's extremely useful when it comes to fertility. Now, a lot of us are kind of misguided into thinking that cholesterol really means fat, but it's really more of an inflammatory marker. So when I see somebody's triglycerides that are elevated, the first question I ask them is, how much are you drinking? And are you eating bread, gluten, sugar, dairy, foods that could possibly be inflammatory to your constitution? That is is always a red flag to me that what they're eating is not creating a homeostatic environment or something is causing intense inflammation. You also want to have a metabolic panel, and that's going to measure your blood sugar levels, as well as your electrolyte balance, kidney function, and liver function. Uh, And the most useful thing that we get out of this metabolic panel is your fasting glucose and your CO2 levels, which tell us how you're using sugar, okay? It's going to point us into the direction if you're hyperglycemic or hypoglycemic, which I see a ton in my patient population, Um, especially my type airs that go, go, go and haven't eaten breakfast basically in 10 years because they've lived off coffee and then they might eat lunch. They may not, depending on what their business does that day. And then it's five o'clock and they're completely hangry. And someone like that, a lot of times they're not handling insulin well, and they are in a form of insulin resistance even though they may not be overweight, they may not be having any problems seemingly on their blood panel, but they'll score kind of low in that fasting glucose somewhere in the 80s or lower. So lower is not always better with your glucose panels. The other thing that we look for when we're looking for hypoglycemia is LDH, lactase dehydrogenase. And again, we're looking for low levels with that to show us that there's some issues with hypoglycemia, which a lot of times those are my thin PCOS patients that may not actually have a diagnosis of PCOS. They may have had a cyst here and there, but they've never really had a characteristic string of pearls. And again, those are, they're not the characteristic of being overweight. They may not have abnormal hair growth and they may even be cycling and getting their periods but their body is misusing insulin because of the hypoglycemia and it's causing problems within the, fe- the feedback loops of the hormones within the ovaries and creating some reproductive challenges. So these are things you wanna know because just as simple as following a PCOS diet and eating fat, regulating your blood sugar with exercise can make a huge difference. 
Another thing that we're looking at is we want to see the entire thyroid cascade, meaning we want to see all the pieces of the hormones that interlock and work with the thyroid so that we can pinpoint if there's potential for a problem or already a red flag that is set in. Now, TSH is thyroid stimulating hormone. That's the most common one. And if you've ever just asked a doctor to check your thyroid, you may have noticed that you know, usually they just use TSH. Maybe you'll get a total T4 in there as well. Um, and the, the TSH is a big marker. And usually you'll see that values between zero and four are seemingly normal in a lab. For fertility, we like to see it sit around a 2.0 or under. Anytime that starts to climb and a patient has some symptoms of hypothyroid, like fatigue, hair falling out, colder than everybody else around them, weight gain or inability to lose that weight, just kind of a low vitality, but maybe they have a TSH of four that another doctor's done. I want to understand what's going on in the thyroid and I want to see the other parts and why it's why this thyroid stimulating hormone is being kind of overproduced, trying to wake up the thyroid. There's often another hormone that is the troublemaker. So the other thing that we're looking for in your thyroid cascade is total T4 thyroxine. And T4 is produced by your thyroid and it can be elevated in conjunction with TSH at times. But really what T4 does is it helps to have a regulatory role in signaling the pituitary gland for the need for more or less TSH. It's basically, it's kind of like the guy on the tarmac with an airplane waving saying, come in faster or slow down in terms of telling your pituitary how much TSH your thyroid is in need of to function. You also want to see T3 uptake. Okay, this is showing you the transportation of thyroid hormone in the bloodstream. Free T4, okay? This is the active portion of T4, which is then converted into T3. Free T3 is the active thyroid hormone that acts at the cellular level. And then the other three that are often missed because they're more expensive, and a lot of physicians will say, well, we'll only run those if we see other problems. But sometimes a lab value, because it's just a snapshot in time, sometimes you'll see relatively normal lab values, and this is missed. And these are your thyroid paradoxase antibodies, also known as TPOAB. Now, this is an autoimmune marker that's associated with Hashimoto's thyroiditis. Hashimoto's is the most common cause of low thyroid function in women in the U.S. It's often misdiagnosed, although it does seem like it's gotten a lot of press in the last few years, and there is more education around it. And this is not an issue necessarily of your thyroid. It's an issue of your immune system attacking the thyroid. It's a case of mistaken identity. This needs to be understood because if you just assume that you have hypothyroid and you're giving medication for that and seemingly nothing is happening, it's probably because you have a case of Hashimoto's or there's an imbalance with the T3 or the T4 and that needs to be taken into consideration when prescribing meds. The other two that can test for antibodies are thyroglobulin antibodies, TGAB. This is also associated with Hashimoto's. And then TSI, thyroid stimulating immunoglobulins. That is usually a marker 
when somebody suspects graves, that they're using that to differentiate what the malfunction is exactly in the thyroid. This doesn't mean that you can't have elevated TSI when you have Hashimoto's, okay? The other thing that we want to see on this wellness panel is vitamin D. This has a variety of effects on the body, everything from immunity um, to uh, GI health to skin health, okay? Vitamin D contributes to better moods and an overall sense of well-being. It supports implantation and fertility and a healthy skeletal system. So kind of staving off osteoporosis, it's very important to be taken when you're taking calcium and or magnesium. So those things are utilized in a proper way in the body. And even in Florida, where you think that everybody would be exposed to more sunlight, you would you would think that everybody had adequate vitamin D levels, and that's simply not true. I actually see a ton of low vitamin D in my practice, and I've even struggled with it myself. And I live by the beach. I think part of that has to do with the fact that we don't get enough um, vitamin D in our diet. Uh, and we also aren't really running around scantily clad in the sunshine all the time. Most of us are in buildings working 40 plus hours a week. We're using sunscreen or we're covered up when we're outside. And this can be a huge contributing factor to that. The other thing we want to see is homocysteine. Elevated homocysteine levels can be associated with complications in pregnancy that nobody wants to have to endure, like spina bifida or cleft palate, preeclampsia, recurrent pregnancy loss, um, or failure to thrive, meaning that the child is just not able to keep up with growth. In many cases, elevated homocysteine factor is because of a mutation of a gene called MTHFR, then it produces this enzyme that we see elevated. And it's because it's trying wildly to to process folic acid and having a difficult time because when you have that mutation, you don't process folic acid, the the synthetic folic acid. Now in the US, years ago, they thought that folic acid was the reason or lack of folic acid was the reason for birth defects. So they fortified all of our processed foods like cereal and bread with folic acid, which is all well and good unless you are somebody that has the MTHFR mutation, okay? Even if it's just heterozygous, meaning you've only got one copy as opposed to two copies in a homozygous mutation, you still can have issues with how your body processes folic acid and you need to take methylfolate instead. So eating those foods that are filled with synthetic folic acid can actually disrupt your body's ability to utilize folate, okay? And then actually cause these birth defects. So this is important to understand. If you have this mutation, you can uh, have a blood test done to to differentiate that. You can also see it on something like a 23andMe, which is a genetic panel to look at your familial history and your DNA. And uh, then you can address those concerns with a qualified healthcare practitioner. And then the last thing that we're going to look at in this portion of the panel is an adrenal stress index. And this is one of those tests that I was talking about that can be, we can use your saliva instead of your blood. Now, sometimes you'll see on a blood test that somebody will draw cortisol, and this will show you what the adrenal 
glands are doing. But it's really important to understand and look back on the test and see when the blood draw was, what time of day, because there's a cascade that happens with cortisol. And this is your one of your leading stress hormones. And what happens is, is it should be super high in the morning. It should be at its highest. And that's kind of the hormone that makes you feel bright-eyed and bushy-tailed and jump out of bed. And then it should go down naturally at night. Well, when you've been burning the candle at both ends, you end up in this reversal where it's really low in the morning and then it spikes at night. It, It reverses completely. So this is why I said it's good to have the time of day if you're using a blood test to look at your adrenal panel. Now, if anything is off on this, so say someone does this test fasting and they go in at 8.30 in the morning because we're fasting for glucose, and I see that their cortisol is really low, well, I want to see what it's doing the rest of the day because the next step is where it tanks at night as well. So you're just exhausted all the time. And based on how ingrained this pattern is or basically how tired your adrenal glands are dictates the type of treatment that we need to do holistically to bring those back up to speed, okay? Okay, now on to the meat. The part that you guys are all wondering about is the fertility lab workup. Like I said, this is gonna include both partners. And so we wanna do a semen analysis. And in the semen analysis, you really wanna look at the total motile sperm And you want to calculate that using volume, concentration, and motility, okay? A lot of times I'll have somebody come and they'll say to me like, oh, it was all fine except there was a a low motility. Well, that can actually be a, a red flag. So we want to look at the whole picture together to understand if it's something that requires intervention, Okay, and again, we want to know that sooner than later. The other thing that males also have available to them now is an advanced sperm quality test to identify problems in sperm DNA from fertilization all the way to embryo development. Okay, and this is an at-home test that you can do through the wonderful company of Episona.com, and I'll include a link in the show notes. But this can be really helpful if you're trying to make your decision of whether or not to do IVF or to especially to do it again if you've done it and failed. Um, So for instance, like if you've had, say you had a really large harvest of 20 eggs, 17 fertilized, maybe 10 made it to day three, and then you get to day five and only two made it. So we've gone from 20 to two. This suggests that there's some problems in the sperm known as male refraction where there's snippets in the DNA. And this test can actually point to whether these are genetic or they are epigenetic, meaning that lifestyle has provoked a pattern to occur within the DNA. And again, this can be helpful for making your decision as well as understanding the health of your partner and any long-term issues that might be there so that you can devise a plan in terms of lifestyle, food, stress levels, supplements to, to be your best self. So for the female fertility lab testing, we want to evaluate the hormonal status, and this is done through blood. We do what's called a day three test. Now, For those of you who don't know, your menstrual cycle is calculated as day one being 
the first day of your period, okay? This isn't spotting and this isn't if you get your period in the middle of the night at like nine o'clock. Day one is considered the next morning. Typically anything after 5 p.m., we count the next day as day one. Now, if you spot for a really long time prior to your period, say upwards of like eight days, then your provider might take the difference of half of that. But for this particular test of day three, we really want full full flow in the morning to count as day one. And that's because your hormones start to go down as you bleed. And we want to get a baseline test. We want to see what they are at their lowest that sheds some light on very different parameters of your body. One of the hormones that we look at on day three is FSH, follicle stimulating hormone. Okay, and this is a hormone that basically shows the ability of the ovaries to produce good quality eggs. As the ovaries' ability to do this decreases, usually as we age, the level of FSH will rise. And that's because the body is trying to say, wake up ovaries, put out some eggs, and it's trying to do that by giving it all the FSH that it could possibly need. So high numbers of FSH are a red flag, and you can't just look at FSH. You have to look at FSH in relation to estradiol as well, and we'll get into that in just a second as to why. So we also measure estradiol then on day three because we want to see what they're doing with one another. And this is just the main type of estrogen in your body. High levels of estradiol at this point in the cycle could also signal poor egg quality or quantity. And we want to look at them in relation to the FSH because if we see a really high estradiol at day three, sometimes that can suppress the FSH. So an FSH that looks seemingly normal without estradiol as a marker can be a false positive sign, okay? Because the estradiol is suppressing the FSH. So you have to look at both of them together. The other thing we're looking at is LH or luteinizing hormone. And luteinizing hormone, we're looking at it in the blood, not on urine like you would for an ovulation test. We're looking at it in the blood because it provides another marker for egg quality and quantity. Uh, And it is also interpreted relative to FSH and estradiol on day three because the ratios of FSH to LH tell us different things in terms of possibility of fertility challenges like PCOS. I'm going to break this down in a little easy to read handout in the show notes. So like I said, if you're confused and this is a lot of clinical jargon, you know, don't get overwhelmed, just take it in and then go to the show notes where you can click on all of these individual tests, you can estimate how much it would cost, and you can even have the quick downloadable chart of what are red flags, what are problems, so that you know exactly what to discuss with your healthcare practitioner when you go in. The other thing we look at is AMH, or anti-malarian hormone. And this is kind of a relatively new marker in terms of ovarian reserve Um, And it's still kind of being interpreted by some. What it reflects is it 
it basically looks at the continuous non-cyclic growth of small follicles, okay? And this is kind of a guesstimate of how many resting or primordial follicles there are. So you have all your eggs, and then you have some that start to set out on this, uh, this venture of becoming an egg. And this process can take 90 to 120 days in a woman. And the AMH in my mind is actually measuring that number of um, cells that are in queue to become an egg, okay? And the reason why I think that it's not always accurate is because that number, if it truly is, if we carry all of our eggs and it's measuring how many we have, as we age and time goes on, it should only go down, right? It should never go up. And I see it fluctuate in some patients. So this is why the distinction, and you need to know that it's measuring the amount of cells that are in queue to develop into a mature egg. Now, it is probably a good indicator of how many are like kind of primordially there, ready to make this journey, but it doesn't always mean that it's as low as or as grim as an outlook as you think when it's low. So take this with a grain of salt when you look at AMH, okay? The other thing is that, you know, I talk about PCOS being missed all the time in patients, and often I'll see a normal or a high AMH in someone with PCOS. The next thing we want to see on this workup is prolactin. Um, prolactin is normally made during lactation, when we're breastfeeding. High levels of this prevent ovulation. This is why you hear the myth like, oh, you can't get pregnant if you're breastfeeding, which is mostly true, but not all the time. Do know that, okay? Um, prolactin levels can be abnormally elevated for other reasons though, which can cause an ovulation or failure to ovulate. And that can include things happening with the pituitary gland, um, I've seen seemingly really, really high stress situations cause an elevation in prolactin. And if you think about it, that's your body's way of saying, hey, the world is really super stressful and scary right now. Uh, not a good place to have a baby. And so it suppresses ovulation and we see that show up in um, elevated prolactin levels. Also super important to get this tested if you've ever had any... Um, if you've ever lactated without being pregnant, and this actually does happen in some women, and there's great formulas in Chinese medicine that can help reverse this, it's, that's also a side effect from some psychiatric medications as well. So important to know if you've had a history of those medications, if you've ever lactated or expressed milk, even if it was just briefly without being pregnant, or you feel like you're not ovulating, prolactin is a, a super important marker to look at. And then the other test that I feel like is missed often is the mid-luteal progesterone, okay? And so this is a test, of, it's a blood draw that's done approximately seven days after ovulation or around day 21. So if you have that kind of picture-perfect 28, 29-day cycle, you ovulate at day 14, and then you would want to get this test approximately seven days later around day 21. And this is because the ovary produces progesterone after it ovulates. So you have to have seemingly a high enough 
amount of progesterone to suggest that you did in fact ovulate, okay? And so if you're getting wonky answers on your OPK P-strips, um, you're not seeing cervical mucus, or you're temping, you're taking basal body temperatures, and you're never really seeing that big drop and rise to half a degree to a full degree in temperature indicating that biphasic chart, and you're really curious, then you want to take a look at your progesterone levels. The other thing that this is important for is when you are experiencing shortened cycles. So say all of a sudden your cycle is now like at 24 days and it used to be 29, 30, like clockwork. And this can point to what we call corpial luteum dysfunction, which is that kind of funny looking hat on the ovary that produces the progesterone after you've ovulated. And sometimes as we age, we have one ovary that just starts to get a little bit lazy and is, is not working up to snuff and we're not actually producing enough progesterone to then hold a pregnancy because we have, a, have to have a certain amount of it uh, to keep the lining in place and therefore the fertilized embryo in its place until our bodies can uh, take over and make a placenta. We're almost there. The other thing you want to look at is free testosterone. Uh, testosterone is an androgen or a steroid hormone, and elevated levels are seen in PCOS, polycystic ovarian syndrome, and are associated with a lack of ovulation. The level of free fraction rather than total testosterone is the best marker for assess assessing PCOS. So if you've always wondered if you were having trouble in this area, or maybe some of what I'm saying is hitting home in terms of your blood sugars, or thinking that you never really quite ovulate, or your cycles are all over the map, and this is definitely a marker we want to look at. DHEA is also another androgen marker that is um, elevated in cases of PCOS and associated with lack of ovulation. Now, DHEA is also a supplement that you can take. You can get this over the counter. And I do see women that come into my office and have decided to self-medicate with DHEA because they read on the interwebs that there was a study in an IVF clinic where it increased egg quality. Now, you have to understand that that study had a very small group of women. And yes, while it could have helped, I want to know, did they have low DHEA to begin with? Because this is an anabolic steroid, it's really dangerous to give this to somebody who does not need it, okay? It can cause havoc in your menstrual cycle. I, it also can have the side effects of taking too much, just like if you were to take steroids to get big and buff, like Arnold, meaning that you can feel like you're coming out of your skin in a, in a roid rage. You can have acne in unpleasant places. You can feel puffy and more muscular than you want to feel. Um, and it can increase hair growth in places that you don't want. So all things we're probably trying to stay away from as pretty ladies, right? So Yes, I'm all for DHEA being used to increase egg quality when the levels test low. If you're on DHEA, you need to be monitored. You need to be continuing to take blood draws to make sure that you're not getting too elevated with DHEA because then we can actually suppress ovulation, which is exactly what we don't want to do. 
Now, some of the other tests that you're going to get during this workup, you cannot just get online with me. You will have to go to a Western healthcare professional to get, and that would include a hysteral salpenogram, which would be performed in the first half of your menstrual cycle. And this is where they're looking at the shape uh, by injecting dye into the uterus to see if there's any structural abnormalities like fibroids um, or a septum, which would be kind of an abnormal growth in the middle of the uterus that could have issues with implantation. And they're also going to look at the patency or the flow of your fallopian tubes. They're going to make sure that your fallopian tubes are not blocked. And if they are, then we're going to set out to figure out why. Really important to know because if your fallopian tubes are blocked, there's no possible way sperm can get up there to the ovary to meet egg. This has to happen. I think a lot of us had the mistaken thought that we ovulate and it comes down the fallopian tube and that's where it is fertilized, which is not the case. This is why it's important to have intercourse 48 hours before ovulation because the sperm have to make this huge journey. They have to jump your cervix. They have to travel up the fallopian tubes to find this perfect egg, okay? So it's a little bit of work. Um, and if, they're, if it's a blocked highway, then we need to look at some other ways in which we can get your eggs out and then put them back in in order to have a successful pregnancy or looking at adoption, right, or surrogacy. The other thing that's going to happen is a sonogram, which is generally recommended if there's been any thought that there's PCOS from your symptoms on your blood work, what you're telling them, or if uterine fibroids are suspected, which are super, super common in women in the U.S., especially women of color. And then you're also going to have an antral follicle count or AFC. The follicle is a cavity in the ovary that contains the mature egg. And what they're looking for on this ultrasound is to see how many are there so that they can determine along with your blood work what your ovarian reserve is, meaning how many eggs do you potentially have in queue? Like, is this a good idea to go through with something like IVF or do you actually have chances of getting pregnant naturally? Woo, that was a lot of information, right? So you can see where knowledge is power. These are not things to be scared of. This is just understanding what's going on, painting the picture of what's happening in your body so that you can act like a detective with your healthcare provider to be sure that you're on the correct path in terms of getting you a healthy, happy baby as soon as possible. Now, as promised, I'm going to go through some of the red flags and some of the markers for some potential um, challenges within your fertility. So in hypoglycemia, we would see a fasting glucose that is low. You'll also see LDH as being low. Your LDL, which is part of your cholesterol panel, will also be normal or elevated, and CO2 will be low. Free testosterone may also be elevated. In insulin resistance, you're going to see fasting glucose that's elevated. HGbA1c is going to be normal or elevated. Your triglycerides will probably be normal or elevated. Your LDL will be normal or elevated. This is your bad cholesterol. Your HDL, your good cholesterol, is either going to be normal or low. Your CO2 is going to be low, and your free testosterone is probably going to be elevated. Now, in PCOS, 
polycystic ovarian syndrome, some of the markers can be, you can have a normal FSH, your estradiol or E2 could be normal, but your ratio of LH to FSH is usually going to be greater than two to one, meaning that you've got twice as much LH as you do to FSH. Free testosterone is probably going to be elevated and your AMH may be elevated, which again, on first glance, might look like a good thing that you've got high ovarian reserve. But what it really means is that you've got all of these follicles sitting there, but they may not be good quality eggs or mature enough. And again, the FSH can be normal and the estradiol can be high, and that would be suppressing the FSH down into a normal range. When if you took away the estradiol that was elevated, the FSH would climb. You can also diagnose polycystic ovarian syndrome by ultrasound. Occasionally in some women, it looks like they're wearing a necklace full of pearls. You can see the cysts kind of linked together. Doesn't always have to show up on an ultrasound. In fact, in a lot of my thinner type one patients that are cycling somewhat regularly, they don't have this. And this is why it's missed a lot of times. And you really have to go looking at blood sugars, FSH, estradiol, testosterone, and LH to get a clear, clear idea of what's going on. And I would just suggest that if you suspect this at all, that you start eating the the way of the PCOS diet, which is including ample amounts of protein and good fats, not bad fats, good fats in your diet to help stabilize your blood sugar and light to moderate exercise to help with the insulin resistance part of it. Now, diminished ovarian reserve is usually seen with FSH that is elevated in a normal E2 or FSH that is low with elevated E2 estradiol. We also see an FSH to LH ratio that is greater than two to one. Okay, so this is the reverse of the PCOS, right? In PCOS, the two to one ratio is LH to FSH. This is gonna be two to one ratio of FSH to LH. We also see AMH that's really, really low and probably lower than the numbers expected for your age. And all your other markers might be normal. And this is, I feel like, one of those devastating diagnoses because it's just like, okay, there's no eggs, but why? And I think that it's really important to have a relationship with a trusted healthcare practitioner to get you on the right path and to discuss what that means. And, you know, if you really want to go down the road of IVF, of using your own eggs and what those outcomes look like in all probability, and if you're mentally emotionally, spiritually ready for that, or if it's something that you should potentially look at donor eggs or a surrogate altogether or adoption. So really, really tough when some one of these comes back of diminished ovarian reserve, especially when it's a young woman. Um, and I would say too that this is this is one of those chances to really try and work with a holistic practitioner and, you know, really give it your all in terms of lifestyle changes and supplements and see if something changes if you do not want to go down the path of assisted reproductive technologies. Okay. Again, a little bit different for all of us and also, you know, including our partner and what they want. And then there's the male fertility labs, right? We want to see volume that's between two to five cc's. If it's lower than that, it's a red flag. 
We want to see concentration where there is over 20 million sperm per cc. Lower than that is an issue. We want to see motility of greater than 50%, meaning that greater than 50% of the sperm are swimming correctly. We also want to see total modal sperm over 40 million. Okay, if that's low, then that is a red flag as well. And if any of those came back low, or if morphology, the shape of the sperm, came back really, really low, one of the first things I would be doing for my husband or partner would be ordering the episode of a sperm test and having it delivered to my house to try and figure out why one of those was off. That was a ton of information, really clinical. We're usually out in woo-woo land or you know the land of the heart. So this was all of your facts. And again, hopefully you will be able to come back to this as you need um, to compare it to your blood work and to really feel like you are doing something on your journey instead of just waiting for things to be done. One of the other things that I will mention is that if you are thinking about going to a reproductive endocrinologist or an RE, you might want to consider, you might calling them and finding out if they require that your fertility workups be done with them. Because occasionally you can have parts of this done with your OBGYN and have insurance cover it. Um, you can also look at the cost of the cash pay tests that I provided in the links. And in many cases, that will be much, much lower than what you would find in RE and could help offset some of the costs. But again, you don't want to pay out of pocket to do these tests only to go to a clinic and then be told nope, we only take results from our lab. Now, most of the time they will take your CBC and your thyroid, vitamin D, cholesterol, that stuff that we talked about in the very beginning, um, as long as it's current within six months to a year from any healthcare provider. But you just really wanna check on the day three. And then of course, you'll have to have the physical exams done with them, the hysterosopenics and the ultrasound. So. I hope this has helped you to understand um, what you can do to empower yourself and what tests would be asked to be done if you were in fact going to visit a, a reproductive endocrinologist or even what tests should be done based on your age and how long you've been trying if you're working with an OBGYN or a holistic um, practitioner like an acupuncturist. If you have any questions, I'd love for, to hear from you. My handle on Instagram and Twitter is Lady Potions for You. Follow, drop me a line, and we can connect there. Um, or you can always connect with me on ladypotions.com. Bye for now. Thanks for listening to Fertile Minds Radio, hosted at www.ladyportions.com, where you'll find past episodes, show notes, and free meditations. If you've benefited from what you've heard, leave a comment or review so it makes it easier for others to find this valuable wisdom. Let's help elevate each other. Thanks for listening.